realized I had my coat on, which means I tore this off, which means I need to finish getting dressed so I can teach Sunday school. Okay. Um, Y'all come on in. Make yourselves at home. There's some seats uh, that can be filled in. While they're doing it, uh, uh, I was talking to Mike Moriarty before class, and he was reminding me about a one of the gentlemen we have in our class named Lynn McClellan, who's a super fella. I did not know of this. I knew Lynn as a, as a lawyer. Lynn's an assistant DA who prosecutes. Y'all come on in. But uh, uh, I did not know this until Mike told me that Lynn has a prison ministry. Now think about it. Here's this guy who sends him to jail and then goes over there and saves him. <laughs> He is a, 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 a tribute. That is the kind of public servant we need, even though he uh, does it as an assistant DA. He's still a, a public servant. He helps us, and uh, it's an honor to, to have him in this class. And y'all just keep coming on in. Just grab lessons. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a 12-pager this week, so it's... Uh, a little bit longer, but uh, it's there. While we're on the subject of public servants, um, we have the opportunity in America to vote for our elected officials, and that's a wonderful thing. And uh, early voting has started for the primary. If you uh, uh, are registered and you vote, uh, it's Patricia, you can vote. What, what's the timing? Today is 1 to 6. Today is 1 to 6. 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. next Monday through Friday for early voting, which is a good thing to do. It's at the Barbara Bush Library, which I think on Cypress Wood. So that would be that way. Next to the police station, right? Okay, um, so uh, if you have a chance to do that, and we never endorse candidates because we're a 501c3 corporation here at the church, uh, so we can't. But I do want to thank Patricia Harless for giving me that information because she does have an oppo opponent. <clears throat> and we love her, as we do every one of God's children. Um, and your brother, none of us can vote for him, but Kurt England's running up in Dallas in a special election Tuesday. And Anytime you get in politics, there's like a lot of mudslinging. And I wish everybody in politics would come hear the sermon we heard this morning on absolute truth because it could radically change our system. Um, but uh, I know your brother needs some prayer because he's uh, 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 like some others that Patricia can relate to, gets some stinging males sometimes that seem totally out from left field. Last point before I, I get into class. I found out that a dear friend of mine named Carlene, uh, she is a single mother with two daughters. She has a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old, um, has ovarian cancer that not only didn't respond to the stage one chemo, but actually metastasized and has gone to her liver and to her lymph nodes. And I was talking to her and she specifically said, Mark, would you ask your class to pray for me and for my daughters? I said, I sure will. And I said, I know you want to be prayed for healing. I said, anything else? And she said, yeah, I want, doctors are giving me months I want two and a half years. I want to get my kids, my girls through high school. So uh, would you put her on your list and pray with me for her? Carlene. God, I lift up Carlene to you right now, and I lift up her daughters, and I lift up the doctors in our medical system, and I ask you to figure out how to grant her life in you on this earth with those daughters through high school. 
and Lord, I'd love you just to heal her totally. And, uh, but uh, yeah, that is my prayer. And it's my prayer further, not knowing your will, that you will give them the grace to walk through whatever you have before them uh, with uh, an understanding and an appreciation for you, who you are. Keep her daughter's hearts soft towards you. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <clears throat> Church history literacy, we're on heresies this morning. Now, as I go through here, I've decided about once every three or four classes, I need to do a couple of things. For one, you've all emailed, not all, a number of you have emailed me a number of questions. And so the first Sunday of each month, I'm going to try and address questions as they've come up. Some of the questions will actually get a lot more full treatment in class as we go along. Some of you are asking questions that do get answered a little bit later. But I will try and address questions the first Sunday of each month. So if you've got any more, email them in. Uh, the class lesson you've got in front of you is hopefully going to last this class and next class. I'll probably do a little supplement next class. But uh, um, uh, it's, it's a two-part lesson that you've got in your handouts um, So uh, uh, for what it's worth. But questions next week. That's one thing I need to warn you about each every three or four weeks. The other is... I never want this class to be offensive to anybody. I want you to have the freedom, not, no, not only the freedom, I want you to want to bring people to this class. It is my strong desire that people come to this class. I'm not into brick stealing. We don't need to steal people from other Sunday school classes, but there are a lot of people that might find this class interesting that they wouldn't otherwise. And so I never want to be offensive to anybody with any kind of a religious heritage. But having said that, I'm going to, as best as I can, explain to you where I'm coming from with, with my perception of history. And so this morning, for example, and next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Mormon faith, even though we'll hit Mormonism in the 1820s. Um, uh, but... Uh, um, some Mormonism comes into play here, in my opinion. And so if you are a Latter-day Saint, as, as Mormons call themselves, and you are here visiting this class for church history, I don't mean to step on your toes, um, but I do uh, uh, teach this class as I understand it to be. And, and uh, if, if you find anything I say offensive, please understand I apologize. I don't mean it offensive. This is just my perception of things for what it's worth. Okay? So with that... I want to start. We are told, we're told, that there was a 14-year-old boy named Joseph Smith who lived on a farm outside a town called Palmyra, New York, not far from Rochester. And this 14-year-old boy had gone out to a, a, a little area of some trees. It's now called the Sacred Grove. But it was a grove of trees, and while he was out there, he was praying for God to explain to him which church he should join, which religion had it right, which faith was the right faith. And Joseph Smith tells the story that God appeared to him, not just God, but God and Jesus both. Very bright apparition, and explained to them that there aren't any accurate churches, that all of the churches have problems, and uh, uh, the, all of the religious denominations were believing in false doctrines and just to hang on and God would tell him the truth. Okay? Now, if we fast forward three years, we're told, a 17-year-old Joseph Smith who lives in this log cabin, that's the, the home in which he lived, 
still on the farm outside Palmyra, New York, uh, is in his room. And while he's in his room, there is a bright apparition. The angel Moroni appears in his room, and the brightness pervades the entire house. And the angel Moroni explains to him, okay, the time is here. And on a regular basis, Joseph Smith, at the instructions of Moroni, would go out past his house to a little hill. It's called Hill Cumorah. Joseph Smith's house is right over in this area of upstate New York. This is the hill, Hill Cumorah. And Joseph Smith would go there, and he'd go there on a regular basis. And in September of 1927, while Joseph Smith was there, he got some gold plates. These were plates that the angel Moroni, before he became an angel, when he is just ordinary like you and me, he lived in America in the 400s. And he wrote out these plates, or got these plates at least, and he buried them. I'm not sure if he wrote them. I don't think he did now that I'm talking myself through this. But he buried them there. And so he took Joseph Smith and said, let's dig them up. And then proceeded to help Joseph Smith translate these plates. Because you see, that's, that's, they're out there in the glade. That's where he dug them up. These pictures, by the way, I got off the, the Mormon website, lds.org. I put the site for that. And, and for the information I'm giving you, not only this week, but next week, because some of it is so different from what you and I would normally believe that I wanted to reference it just in case you said, do they really believe that? So what I'm giving you is data that is from them. This is not Mark Lanier's spin. This is what we are told. He got those plates. And when he took them back, he started working on them, trying to translate them because they were in Reformed Egyptian, whatever that might be. Joseph Smith relates the stories that they were hieroglyphics that he was never trained to translate. He proceeded to translate these over a period of time and secrets were revealed to him that brought him to the truth of what the church should be and the truth of what Jesus Christ was. And Mormon teaching that Joseph Smith got, that Joseph Smith has delivered and that the church has followed is teaching that involves you and me, it involves God, the cosmos, it involves salvation and the work of Jesus. It's teaching that relates the fact, we are told, that you and I were not created when we were conceived. Rather, we have existed from time gone back. We used to live with God our Father in heaven as pre-existing spirits. We just reached a point where we'd grown enough to where he had to put us in earthly bodies so that we could learn and grow some more and get the experiences of earth. But we're part of this cosmic family of God and, and the mother goddess. And so we're all gods too. We have an older brother named Jesus. There was another sibling named Satan. And it's just one big cosmic family. 
And how we live here decides our destiny in terms of are we going to get our own little area of the universe to populate because we've been married in the temple and we've done those things or, and, and, and we'll have our own little cosmic spiritual children and maybe get to do our own planet Earth one day. These are secrets that the church just didn't understand for 1,800 years until the angel Moroni revealed it. Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, here's something new. The roots of some of Mormon doctrine are found in heresies that were present in the church in uh, the 100s and 200s. And so I want to look at them today. Um, I will tell you from my perspective, and, and I, I, I started um, a group called the Christian Trial Lawyers Association. And I was in Mississippi. I don't, Charles is the executive director of it, Charles Mickey. I don't know if you were with me, Charles, in Mississippi or not, but I was in Mississippi speaking to uh, the Mississippi Trial Lawyers Association. And I was telling them about it to see if anybody wanted to join or if they all wanted to be pagans. And <laughs> the, uh, uh, in the process, uh, uh, I was asked, um, well, does this mean that you are a Christian bigot? And, uh, you know, what do you, that, that Jewish trial lawyers, for example, should, uh, they're not in the club. And I said, well, I think Jewish trial lawyers are, can be wonderful people and they should try lawsuits and live their lives in accordance with their faith. But I said, they don't need to join ours unless they're also Christians. You know, there ought to be like, if, if the Jewish trial lawyers want to start their own trial lawyer association, I wouldn't be upset. If the Mormon trial lawyers in Utah wanted to start the Mormon trial lawyer association, I wouldn't be upset. And I had a guy out there who was a Mormon who came up to me afterwards and chewed me out politely chewed me out because Mormons are Christians, he said. And I was very polite to him, but if he's here today, he's going to chew me out again because <laughs> Mormonism teaches heresy. I say that with love, but I say that with bluntness and candor. You can look up heresy in your dictionary, and heresy is teaching that's claiming to be Christian even though it's contrary to orthodoxy or what is normative, accepted Christian belief. And Mormonism is heresy. It is teaching that is contrary to the teachings of the historical Orthodox Church. We will go into that in more detail. Now, um, why is this lesson important? I sat through Scott's wonderful sermon this morning uh, uh, on the edge of my seat for part of it because I, I really liked what he had to say. And um, I thought, boy, it really meshes well with our Sunday school class. Maybe we should just dispense with the closing song and bring the PowerPoint in there and just finish up. <laughs> then I thought better. Um, mainly because I needed to go to the restroom. And um, so... The, the lesson today, though, why does this matter? Why is it worth looking at early heresy of the church? A number of reasons, but I want to list a few of them for you. First of all, um, truth matters. She got it. That's a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
everybody just thought that was one of Lewis's cousins. Um, truth matters. It makes a difference. Truth makes a difference. Take all of Scott's sermon and wrap it up into a pretty bow and let me tell you, it makes a difference in who we are and it makes a difference in what we do and it makes a difference in how we act whether we admit it or not. Whether we're consciously aware of that fact or not. Truth matters. Because you see... The road to heresy isn't always a big U-turn. It's not where you're going along and you say, Oh my, I want to be a heretic. By definition, a heretic is someone who believes in heresy. I want to be a heretic. I think I'll do a U-turn on the Christian road. I'm a heretic. Okay? That's not the way it happens usually. I'm not saying it can't. It's a slight deviation in the road. It's a slight turn to the left. You're getting part of my opening statement I'm about to give in this case up in New Jersey. So if you read about it in the newspaper, you can say, he tried that out on us. Because <laughs> I'm convinced what this company did that I'm after, they didn't all of a sudden decide, hey, let's kill 100,000 people for money. Okay. What they did is just kind of, as, as Dr. Bob told me, he said, Mark, he said, here's the way it goes down. Let's say one of my old girlfriends comes into town. Bob's not here today, is he? Oh, I can really use this one. He says, let's say one of my old girlfriends comes into town. And she wants to eat lunch. And I think, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Not that Kelly, Dr. Bob's wife, would understand, but I could just eat lunch with her because there's, there's nothing wrong with it. So Bob goes to lunch with his old girlfriend. And while he's at lunch... His cell phone rings. It's Kelly. Hello. Hey, honey, how are you? Fine. What are you doing? Eating lunch. Oh, really? Who are you eating with? Mark. <laughs> oh, well, tell him I said hi. Oh, oh I got to go. Food's in my mouth. And he hangs up. And then Kelly sees me the next day. Says, hey, how was your lunch yesterday with Bob? I didn't eat lunch with Bob yesterday. Oh, you didn't. Bob, Mark says he didn't eat lunch with you yesterday. Mark? Oh, you thought I meant Mark Lanier? No, 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 I meant Mark Hopkins. You don't even know. And, and, and Bob's point was, you know, you tell just a little bit of a fib to get out of a problem. And the problem is, is that little deviation in the road leads to another deviation. Leads to another deviation. Leads to another one. Leads to another one. And pretty soon, you've done the U-turn. And that's the way it was with heresy in the church. It's still the way it is with heresy in the church. Sometimes it's a stark turnaround. But sometimes it's just someone who grabs a hold of some little doctrine or some peculiar explanation of Scripture. And then they start going this way. And they don't stay grounded in the church. And so they get a little bit further away. And they get a little bit further away. Satan never is as good at getting you if he jumps out in his red devil costume with a pitchfork. You can almost always pick him out of the crowd. <laughs> his best way of getting you is by being your buddy like he was to Jesus. 
after 40 days of not eating, when he doesn't jump out with the red devil costume and the pitchfork, he kind of nuzzles up to him on the side and says, hey, we got stuff to talk about. I know, but you got to be hungry, man. You had not eaten in 40 days. Uh, why don't you go ahead and just turn some rocks into bread? If you're the son of God, you can do that. And uh, get something to eat and let's talk. Well, what could be nicer than offering a starving man bread? And that's the way he works. That's the way he goes after my kids. That's the way he goes after me. And that's the way he goes after you. So the road to heresy is not always a U-turn. And we're going to see that. Next, a lesson from this also is our core understanding. Y'all come on in. Just grab a seat. This is friendly time. You cannot disrupt anybody unless like you cough on them. Um, core understanding of the Bible is different than complete understanding. If you ask me to explain every passage of Scripture in the Bible, there are some that I'm going to have to tell you, I don't understand that. Now, understand I'm 45 years old. I have cared about Scripture for as long as I can remember in my life. When I was in high school, I fiercely dedicated myself to memorizing books of the Bible. I led Bible studies and I preached. I went to school. I got a degree, a preaching degree with an emphasis in biblical languages. I took three and a half years of Greek. I took four and a half years of Hebrew. I took two years of Latin. I took a semester of Aramaic. I took a semester of Syriac. So I could read and understand the Bible. I am a complete Bible nerd. I have thousands of books on the Bible. I have an incredible biblical library because I love this stuff. I read this for fun. Okay? I mean, it's just the truth. I'm a Bible nerd, and I admit it. Now, there are passages in the Bible, you ask me about them, and I'm going to tell you, I don't understand. Here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea. I'm really not sure which one's right, and maybe none of them. But I want to tell you something. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. And there's not a doubt in my mind that he came down to this earth and that he took on my sins and that he died for me and that he was resurrected after three days, that he has ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of Almighty God, the Father, and that he will come again. There's not a doubt in my mind. I understand Scripture in its core teaching, but I don't understand it all. And I tell you that because this is where cults can get in. Cults and heresies are the same thing. This is where heresies can creep in. Be wary of goofy interpretations of Scripture. Okay? I mean, just be careful. People who come up with goofy interpretations that just seem to... You know, I watch some people on what's called Christian TV... And some of what is taught there is absolutely goofy. It's goofy. It's not orthodoxy. It's heresy. So, having said that, let's look at heresy in the early church. We're going to start looking at Gnosticism. Isn't that a great word? Say it with me. Gnosticism. The G is silent. Do you know why? <laughs> For the same reason the K is silent in Cano. 
G-N-O was their K-N-O from which we get Kano because they gnu about it back then. <laughs> Gnosticism, you would not get anyone understanding you, but Gnosticism, just forget the G's even there. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnostikos, which means capable of attaining knowledge. Not just any knowledge, secret knowledge. This is like Joseph Smith. He was a Gnostic. He was, he was able to get some secret knowledge nobody else had. Gnostics get that secret knowledge. And this came around in the church. Now you think about the early church. The early church doesn't have a bunch of NIVs floating around. Not everybody's got a Bible to go back and compare the teaching to. The early church is, is real close to the line of Jesus. I mean, Jesus doesn't leave earth for good until 10 days before the church gets started. And, and even when Paul's writing his Corinthian letter, there are hundreds of people that were witnesses to the resurrected Christ still around by name and rank and serial number that you could identify. <clears throat> Don't you know how easy it was for some people to say, before he left, he told me some secrets. I've got them. Would you like them? This is not for everyone. This is just for those who are gnosticos, those who, who are able to understand the secrets. You might call us, with all humility, super-Christians. <laughs> We're not the run-of-the-mill ordinary Christian. We know the secrets, the real secrets of Christ revealed. You don't think that sold then? It still sells. About once every six weeks on the weekly world news. I keep buying it. I'm looking for the secrets of Christ revealed. I mean, it's on the headline, secrets of Christ revealed. We had Armageddon last year. I knew that was coming because I read it in the same thing. I just missed it when it happened. But the secrets are revealed. You can get the secret books of the Bible if you want to get on line and order it off Amazon.com or go to Barnes & Noble. We'll talk more about that later. But this is the idea of Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnostiko, which is capable of attaining knowledge, but gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge, for what you know. And um, um, so, what did Gnosticism teach? Well, let me, let me digress for a minute and tell you that there were probably hundreds of different kinds of Gnosticism. We know of over 20 just written up by, by a fellow that we're going to study here today and next week. But there were hundreds of different schools of Gnosticism. Everybody has their own branch of the secret. Okay? But in general, Gnosticism in the early church believed the following. First of all, they believed that there's more than one God. They believed there's more than one God. That's why we use the little g there. Okay? Second... They believed that your spirit is good, but your body and the earth and the things that you can touch and feel and smell and taste are evil. You got it? Your spirit is good. Now, I'm going to tell you, you will catch hints of this in different churches, even today, that we would consider orthodox churches. Even in orthodox churches... There is a mentality among some that 
Well, that's physical. That can't be good. That must be evil. We'll find stages where Christianity went through and embraced some of these Gnostic teachings even as they rejected the Gnosticism. The idea that that uh, and, and it's, it's worthy of more discussion and we'll get in it later. But for example, the idea of, of uh, sexuality within marriage between husband and wife. The idea that it could be pleasurable as opposed to merely being for procreation. <gasps> that can't be right. You know, pleasures to be shunned. That's not scriptural. Okay? That is a, a, a root form our root result of this Gnostic doctrine that the spirit's good, but the body and the earth are evil. That's not scriptural. That's heresy. Okay? So the goal in Gnosticism is to set the spirit free from this tomb of a body it dwells in and then get it home. Because the Gnostics also believed, and it depends on your branch, we'll talk about this and you'll find some of it kind of Interesting, if not bizarre. But the Gnostics believe that there are tons of gods throughout the heavens. And each one kind of has his own little dominion. And so once the body is free, the body's got to get home to the real father God. And what's going to help you get past all of these minion gods is the secret knowledge they'll teach you. We're going to teach you the names of the gods so you can invoke their names and travel through their sphere as you go home. It's kind of wacko, but this is, this is what it was. So, major heresy, Gnosticism. Jesus, they said, was the Savior not because he took your sins. This doesn't have anything to do with taking your sins and dying for your sins. What Jesus did is he taught people the secrets on how to get home. So, you want to know? You come to me, I'll tell you the secrets. This was the, this was the Gnostic heresy. Okay? Now, where do I get this information from? A lot of you ask, I always try to footnote as much as I can, but where does this come from? Let me give you some places. In 1945, right across the river from Nag Hammadi, Egypt, um, was a discovery of a bunch of books that had been buried. Evidently, you bury a book in the, down in this part of Egypt where it never rains, and it'll like last for a few thousand years. So they found down there near these old sand dwellings some old manuscripts that date back into the two and 300 era. And what they were were Gnostic writings. These are still a hotbed of scholastic research right now. The scholars are pouring over these. Papers will be written on this this year. Okay? You can get these in a decent English translation. It finally came out in English, I remember, because I was in college, and I, got, I have a first edition in the English. The Nag Hammadi Library. You can get a lot of the writings from Nag Hammadi there, but you don't have to go there. You can order the Gnostic scriptures, which will give you a lot of these Gnostic writings. It'll put you to sleep, it'll make you giggle, and it'll also illuminate, as we'll do so much more in a later class, why um, that book's so nutty, uh, The Da Vinci Code. 
See, because what he'll do is he'll go find these little nutball passages from these heretics that, and not put them in any frame of reference and act like this was Christianity. But it wasn't. This was heresy. Okay? Um, this is not the only place we get our information from, the Nag Hammadi text. In fact, I get more of it from St. Irenaeus of Lyon. St. Irenaeus of Lyon is a fella who we're going to spend some time getting to know. Lyon, France. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, a couple. Yeah, a number of you have. Um, Lyon, France is right here. And you think France, you think modern, right? Didn't used to be called France. It used to be called Gaul. Gaul. That's right. And how many parts was Gaul divided into? Yes. Second year Latin. Omnes Gaules est divisa in partes tres, right? All Gaul is divided into three parts. That's what Caesar starts out his Gallic wars with. Julius Caesar conquered this area, and this is the southern part of Gaul, Lyon, France. I think it was called uh, Lugdunum back then instead of Lyon. But St. Irenaeus of Lyon, he wasn't born in Lyon. A neat guy. Originally, he's from Smyrna, born around 120. Who did we study from Smyrna? Polycarp. Last week, the guy that martyred, right? Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna when Irenaeus was a kid and growing up. Polycarp mentored Irenaeus. Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John. So that's how we are generationally. The Apostle John, last living apostle, dies in Ephesus, which is close to Smyrna. Dies in Ephesus. His student, Polycarp, becomes bishop of the church there. And Polycarp starts ministering this young little fella named Irenaeus. I, maybe they called him Ira for short. I don't know. He's originally from Smyrna. He's mentored by Polycarp. And around 150, we think he was around 30 years old, he moved to Lugdunum, which is Lyon, France. We call it Lyon. They called it Lugdunum. And he moves there and he becomes active in the church. He stays in the church, but somewhere in this time, the church sends him to Rome to help out with some problems in the church in Rome. It's a good thing for Irenaeus because a, 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 a purging of the church in Lyon happened while Irenaeus was in Rome. And hundreds, if not thousands, were martyred. Irenaeus didn't die. He was in Rome. When he finished in Rome, he moved back to, um, this is the countryside right outside of Lyon, France. He moved back to that area. And when he moved back, he taught barbarians. Do you know what a barbarian is? In the Greek Latin mind, it's someone who didn't speak Greek or Latin. They're a barbarian. Our word barbarian comes from their word Barbarian. <laughs> they got it because to the Greek and Latin ear, all of these barbarians, this is what they sounded like. Bar, 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 bar. You couldn't understand a word they said. So they just called them the barbarians. That's all they're doing is talking bar, bar, bar. And ours is, we'd call them the, the yada, dada, dada Aryans. Yada, 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 yada. Yeah. That's all they do, yada, yada. 
but they were barbarians. Okay? See, the things you can learn at church? Um, so he teaches the barbarians. Has to translate everything into this barbarian language. He goes to Rome. He comes back. He becomes bishop of the church at Lyon. And he starts writing because while he was in Rome, he found the Gnostics were taking over in rapid numbers. Not taking over, but they were multiplying like rabbits. And so he went back and decided he was going to write up the Gnostics. And so he wrote against them. He has a book. Actually, he's got several. But a book you can buy. St. Irenaeus of Lyon. It is entitled Against the Heresies. That's the short title. He gave it a longer title. Expose and overthrow or refutation of what's falsely called knowledge. Gnosis in the Greek. Knowledge. What's falsely called knowledge, I'm going to expose it and I'm going to refute it. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look a little bit at what he had to say and we're going to look at it in more detail next week. The neat thing is, scholars used to say, um, you can read scholars in the 1800s and early 1900s where any, anybody who wrote for Christianity from an intellectual basic was a cynic and didn't believe anything. Um, that's an overstatement, but not by much. And they would say, well, this is just the Christian painting of what Gnostics believe. Gnostics didn't really believe all of that stuff. This is just the Christian effort to step on them. And then they made that discovery at Nag Hammadi in 1945. Turns out he was right. Um, pretty dead on accurate, actually, for what he had to say about the Gnostics. We need to remember his name, Ira. Remember Ira. You don't have to do the Gnaeus. Okay? Just Gnaeus. I guess the Greek word noose is mind, but it could also be the word new. So maybe he was just the new Ira. For us, he's now the old Ira. So just remember Ira. But remember Ira because later on we're going to talk about it. Ira wrote some of the best early theology. He's generally recognized as the first real theologian of the church since Paul died. He writes theology more so than any other writer up to his time. And it's pretty incredible what he writes about. Because his view of heresy was one that required him to explain in theology what Jesus did. He, well, this is a two-part lesson. I must not get ahead of myself. St. <laughs> Irenaeus said, there are two pillars to the... Oh, look at that. I did that way. Did you see that? It took like ten minutes this morning. Okay. I can't, it, it would have taken two, except I kept trying to figure out how to get it to keep doing it while I was talking, and I couldn't, so that, that was it. Um, Irenaeus said there are two pillars of the church. The church's foundation is based on two different things. It's based first on the authority of Scripture. Now, he's writing about 180 A.D., I mean, John died about 100 A.D., so he's 75, 80 years after John died. He's 85 years after the book of Revelation, the last book written in our New Testament. He's already saying Scripture, and when he says Scripture, he doesn't mean just the Old Testament. He means what we call the New Testament as well, the apostolic writings. Scripture is one of the pillars of the church. The second pillar of the church is apostolic tradition. 
This is not a three-pillared church. There's not a pillar in this church for secrets that are being passed on that Jesus told A, who told B, who told C, who told me. That's not what the church is built on. It's built on scripture, and it's built on apostolic tradition. How? Well, scripture. He says scripture is perfect. He says scripture is the mainstay and the pillar of our faith. He says scripture is inspired by God and divine. He understood what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching training, rebuking, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He understood that. And for him, he understood it not just for the Old Testament, for the apostolic writings as well, because you see, that's where you find the apostolic tradition. You do not find it in word-of-mouth whispers that have been handed down secretly to those who were superb enough and gnosticos enough to attain and understand such wondrous knowledge. It was the apostles who produced the scriptures. So for him, apostolic tradition is an equal pillar. For him, there was a clear link of bishops. He's able to say, John was the apostle who put Polycarp in charge of the church at Smyrna, and Polycarp's the one who taught me. And he could say, you know, here's the chain of bishops that have come down from the church. There wasn't the mystery man anywhere in the church who was getting the mystery secrets. In fact, it's the opposite. And so any teaching in the church has to be consistent with the other churches that the apostles have established. And he was also big as we... And we'll see, Bob keeps reminding me, Bob's my, Dr. Bob, my perennial reference point, but Dr. Bob's Catholic, and he says, how have you managed to teach earth history, church history for eight weeks and not say Catholic yet? <laughs> so anyway, Jim, Jim can be gigging me on this too, but, but we will deal with Catholic uh, development of, of the, the ecclesiastical system that we consider Catholicism in, in a section of, a, of another class. But he'll be one of the important people because he saw the church at Rome as authoritative, um, and it's the first good solid reference we have to that, about 180. Um, he was a guy who wrote, and look what he said. I love this. He says, from us who live among the Celts, or Celts, and are accustomed to translating practically everything into a blah-blah-blah-blah-blah tongue, you cannot expect rhetorical art or the craft of writing or elegant style and persuasiveness. He was an humble man. He was an humble writer says, don't expect my writing to be any good. I live among people who talk bar, bar, bar. So I can't write well. But I'm telling you, the guy writes really well. He's just kind of humble. I and mean, look what he says at the start of his uh, book. Error, in fact, hides its true self. Because if you see it naked, you see it for what it is. So instead, it craftily decks itself out in an attractive dress and by an outward false appearance presents itself to the more ignorant as truer than truth. The people who are buying into this are not so super spiritual and smart. They're actually more ignorant, that's what he's saying. They've bought a lie because it was decked out in a real fancy dress. But if you stripped it naked, you see it exactly for what it is. 
Here's how he analyzes. This is the way he analyzes doctrine. If Joseph Smith had been there in this class in 1820, it could be a different world. First, what is the doctrine that's being taught? Flesh it out. Someone brings you a teaching, Irenaeus would tell you, Ira, he'd say, don't just buy the teaching. Flesh it out, understand what it is, and then ask this, what's the basis? What's the authority for the doctrine? What is it? Is it, oh, it was a secret told me? Or this is something that the angel Moroni showed me on Hill Cumorah that's just no longer there, so I don't have it to show you? And then his third analysis, what does Scripture say on this? Okay, so what's the doctrine, what's the authority for it, and what's the Bible say? That's a pretty good way to do it, isn't it? There are three Gnostics that we're going to look at. We're going to look at Serenthus, we're going to look at Marcion, and we're going to look at Valentinius. I'm sure we have two minutes. So we're, not, we're, we're going to save Serenthus probably for next week. Um, now, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, okay, yeah. All right, here's the deal. We're going to go into depth next week. But I will tell you this. He was teaching at the time the Apostle John was still alive. Serenthus was. And Serenthus says that God was not known before Jesus Christ. That stuff in the Old Testament, different God. God wasn't known until Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself was ordinary. Wasn't born of a virgin. Just an ordinary guy. A holy guy, but an ordinary guy until he was baptized. And that's when this unknown God came down in the form of a dove and, and uh, possessed him. Instead of demon possession, it was God possession. And God taught Jesus some secrets then. And then, you remember Jesus is, is about to go get crucified and he's in the garden? You know what? Christ bails out on him at the Passion. God leaves Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a wacko interpretation of Scripture, or goofy. John is who, or Serenthus uh, um, is who John wrote against when he wrote his epistle, 1 John. When he wrote, Dear children, this is the last hour. As you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. They weren't Christians. Uh, you have an anointing, that should be from, the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. No lie comes from the truth. Who's the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. The idea that there's this, other, this Christ that just came on to him, that's a lie. Jesus is the Christ. And a man who denies that is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. And no one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Dear friends, don't believe every spirit. Test them. Do what Ira said to see whether they're from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Not just some mystic spirit that came in, but Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's the teaching from God. I will tell you this. John died in Ephesus, we believe. Um, this is, uh, if you go to Ephesus, we've been there a couple times. That's, that's a, yeah, it's a commode, sorry. Okay, but bear with me. It's the public bathroom for men. 
it's marble. It's really nice. Um, Ira writes about what Polycarp told him happened. Polycarp was with John, and John was going to go into the bathroom, and Serenthus is there in the bathroom. The Apostle John says, let's fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within. Next week we'll look at him in more detail. We'll look at Marcion. Money can't buy me love. Or orthodoxy, he tried. Um, Valentinius. Uh, I'm wondering if he met the angel Moroni because there are some real similarities. Uh, points for home. Truth is truth. Scott said it best this morning. Fiction's not truth. That's why we call it fiction. We measure truth by God's word. And salvation's a real event by a real God in real history. It's not something that we just talk about and make sound spiritually good. Pray with me. Lord, I pray your blessing upon all of us here. I pray you'll bring us back together. I thank you for this class and an opportunity to learn your truth. I pray you will convict us deep in our hearts of your truth and that you will help me present your truth in very clear fashion. Help us see heresy for what it is and embrace you as the way, the truth, and the life and hold on to you for eternity. In Jesus we pray, amen.